G'day and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. On the show today, when Trump and Kim met, we'll be talking about the Singapore summit. You know, it's been said that North Korea without a nuclear deterrent is like Saudi Arabia without oil. Without it, they fear the country disappears from the geopolitical map. So with that in mind, is Kim really serious about denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula? We'll have a great debate to discuss all that. Plus, Turkey goes to the polls on June 24, but it's not going to be plain sailing for the incumbent president, that's Erdogan. A real opposition has formed to stand against him in what could be a watershed moment for Turkey. But first, the Singapore summit, where US President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un headed into a one-on-one meeting, a first for the two countries. And the result? A commitment to denuclearise the Korean Peninsula and reach a lasting peace. Or is it? So much has been written and said this week about the historic meeting. So let's hear two views. Daniela Pletka is the Vice President for Foreign and Defence Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, and Leonid Petrov is a visiting fellow in the College of Asia and Pacific at the Australian National University in Canberra. Danielle, Leonard, welcome back to Between the Lines. Good morning. Thank you. Leonard, a year ago, the world worried that Kim Jong-un would fire a missile that would hit US allies or even the US mainland. This week, of course, he touted himself as a peacemaker on the world stage. How do you account for his U-turn? I don't think it's a U-turn on the North Korean side at all. North Korea has been very consistent with its uh, proposal to tone down the rhetoric um, to have a peace treaty or at least have negotiations about uh, ending the Korean War, which hasn't uh, formally ended since uh, 1953. And I think uh, what happened it was the U-turn on the American side, which I welcome very much. I think it's sensational to see uh, how American side actually suddenly accepted what North Korea has been proposing for the last several decades. Yeah, but some pundits, uh, Leonard, say that uh, Kim is merely responding to Trump's fire and fury threats a year ago. Not at all. Fire and fury would only incinerate uh, North Korean indignation towards uh, Americans. They were really in earnest preparing to do something really terrible in defense, in response to a provocation and to regime change attempt and to preemptive strike. But as soon as American rhetoric changed and that actually we saw that with the participation of China and Russia in international sanctions, and that's, I believe, this is what pushed Kim towards the more open position towards inter-Korean reconciliation. And President Moon Jae-in of South Korea really acted as a mediator between Washington and Pyongyang. Okay, well, we're talking about erratic and impulsive leaders here. Donald Trump, Danny, in the space of nine months, we've gone from Trump describing Kim as little rocket man to praising him as talented, saying he has a special bond. How do you account for Trump's oscillation? Uh, Well, you know, living here in Washington, there's really no accounting for Trump's (laughs) oscillation, if I may say so. Honestly, it's very hard to keep track. Uh, You know, look, what I think is that Donald Trump believes he has an opportunity to address what is one of the most grave threats to American national security. Here we have a country with probably several dozen nuclear weapons. We have a country with a a very aggressive missile program on the verge of having a missile that is capable of carrying a nuclear device that can reach the continental United States. 
that's a legacy that Donald Trump received from the Obama administration and, frankly, from the administrations before Obama. And now he's doing his best to address it. Yeah. What about this talk of withdrawing some or all of the 32,000 US troops from South Korea? We've also got this proposal to end joint US-South Korean military exercises. I mean, to what extent does all this contradict traditional mainstream Republican foreign policy? Let us not talk about the mainstream of Republican foreign policy because, of course, Donald Trump is not really in the mainstream of anything. And rather ask, well, yes, okay, Donald Trump offered to and said that we would end what he called war games and, of course, joint military exercises between the United States and South Korea that have been going on for many years. He did not suggest that we were going to withdraw troops from South Korea, at least not in his meeting or in the immediate aftermath. What did we get in return? I have absolutely no idea. Uh, As best I can tell, we got almost nothing in return. And certainly, while we can look with some worry at what uh, Donald Trump offered in exchange, we don't yet know what we're going to get. Those of us who watched Trump call the deal with Iran that Obama signed the worst deal in the history of the world are certainly worried that he is going to make a deal that's even weaker than the one that Obama made with now, Iran. Now, Lena, Danny represents the conventional wisdom here, I think. The argument that Kim gives up nothing only to be elevated as a rock star on the global stage. And if you look at the detail here, or lack thereof, there's no freezing on uranium or plutonium. No talking about destroying those intercontinental ballistic missiles. No inspectors, no timetable. Has Trump been played for a fool here? Well, Tom, we don't know what Kim and Trump have been uh, discussing behind the closed doors. Um, The document which they've signed was quite comprehensive. Yes, it was actually touching the main points about the durable and sustainable peace in the region, which is very important. And we have the signature of the North Korean dictator and the president of the most powerful state uh, on earth declaring that it's going to be uh, peace in Korea, which is the focal point of Northeast Asia. So details, yes, of course, that's a continuing diplomatic process. Negotiations would work out the timetable for denuclearization in exchange for lifting of sanctions, in exchange for diplomatic recognition and in exchange for security assurance. Okay, but but Leonard, what about ending joint US-South Korean military exercises? Because many people in Seoul and Tokyo would naturally be very uneasy about that proposal. Well, many people in Seoul and uh, Tokyo would be very comfortable with having less nuclear-armed U.S. assets on the Korean Peninsula and and the islands of Japan and Okinawa in particular. It is time to see the end of the Cold War in the region, which has been continuing, well, since 19 late 40s. And I believe that ending the provocative and very expensive uh, military exercises in South Korea and in Japan, it's something what... uh, President Trump promised when he was running for presidency. He actually delivered in Singapore his two promises. First, he sat down with Kim Jong-un and he didn't have a burger, but he had something more exotic (laughs) and ironed out uh, the the disagreements with North Korea, which should have been done a long time ago. Uh, No American president would dare to do so. And the second promise which he wanted was an attempt to uh, minimize American military presence overseas and make it less expensive for American taxpayers. Well, Danny, doesn't Leonard have a point there? I mean, it's been 65 years since the end of the Korean War, nearly 30 years since the Berlin Wall fell, aren't these proposals long overdue and welcome? You know, time is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the threat that 
North Korea represents to our interests and to our allies. And, of course, all of this should take into account the fact that China has, rather than becoming less of a threat since the ascent of Xi Jinping, has become more of a threat. The militarization of the South China Sea is only one small aspect of that. Of course, China's relationship with North Korea is also something that should occasion us a great deal of worry. At the end of the day, of course, I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C. I'm not facing up to this nearly as much as the country that you're all speaking from, Australia. Australia has had to contend with an increasingly aggressive People's Republic of China just in your own universities, let alone in the ocean that surround you. So the idea that somehow we ought to be giving up and eating hamburgers with people who have been responsible for the death of a million people, that we should be sitting back and forgetting about our allies in South Korea and Japan just because it makes Russia and Pyongyang comfortable and the peace crowd in South Korea seems to be, I don't know, Unreasonable. My guests are Danielle Pletka from the American Enterprise Institute and Leonard Petrov from the Australian National University. We're chatting about this week's Singapore summit. Let's move to denuclearization. Uh, Leonard, uh, many seasoned experts of North Korea, including the CIA, they've long believed that the North would never give up their weapons. Has anything changed? Well, I don't know who is more paranoid, um, North Koreans or Americans, calling China an aggressive threatening nation, well, I don't know how much uh, credibility is that in that statement. North Korea has never planned to attack the United States. Uh, North Korea made uh, reckless uh, statements in response to the American president going to the United Nations General Assembly and pounding his uh, fist on the, on the podium and uh, promising to destroy North Korea completely. Yes, the rhetoric was uh, high, but uh, North Korea is a small, impoverished nation on the just in the middle of the quickly developing uh, region which is dreaming about re-engaging into the international economic uh, system which um, only can hope for the lifting of sanctions so i don't think what what we talk about the north korean or, or chinese threat china is uh, investing billions of dollars into developing in infrastructure they're not going to destroy this infrastructure that does make sense so i think that americans should really reconsider their, their your argument then is that um the, uh, the North Koreans, from their perspective, nuclear weapons are the ultimate deterrent to a foreign attack. And the only possible way to get Pyongyang to denuclearize would be for the US and South Korea to adopt a fundamentally different approach and stop threatening North Korea with regime change. Danny. Of course, that is the North Korean position. We need to have nuclear weapons because nuclear weapons are the absolute guarantor of continued uh, of continued. Kim uh, rule over, Kim dictatorship over the people of North Korea. That's the way it's been for the last 70 years. They would like it to continue for another 70, if not more. So from the North Korean perspective, if we want, if we want to speak for them, I have absolutely no doubt that that's their desire and that they do not want regime change. Now, the Americans have not suggested that that is their goal. President Trump, I don't think, is interested in getting into a war on the Korean peninsula. I don't think even when he was embracing stronger rhetoric, he was interested in getting into a war on the Korean peninsula. Let's forget about the plight of the Korean people. Let's, let's forget about our allies in South Korea. Let's forget about our our allies in 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 you know, Southeast Asia. Let's forget about our allies in Japan and in India. Let's forget about all of that and just talk about the relationship that North Korea has with 
Iran, the nuclear cooperation, the missile cooperation, the relationship that North Korea had with Libya when they had nuclear weapons. North Korea is a threat to us, not just in Asia. North Korea is a threat to the United States everywhere. That's the problem that we face, and it's one that needs to be addressed with some alacrity. Otherwise, we look at not simply them in Asia, but them proliferating throughout the world. This is what we've seen historically. So that's the, that's the challenge that North Korea represents to us. And I am hopeful, not confident, but hopeful that the Donald Trump's rhetoric does not represent a complete capitulation and collapse of our position, but instead represents a shrewd strategy that's going to get us to a deal with North Korea that represents the definition of denuclearization that we believe in here in Washington. Okay, but just say, just say if the North... And verify, right, the it, TVID, right? That's right, but just say if North Korea fails to do just that, denuclearize, what then, Leonard, can America and the region learn to live with a nuclear North Korea? What do I mean uh, by uh, failing to denuclearize? If Americans honor their promise to lift the sanctions and uh, be less hostile and um, um, establish some diplomatic channels with Pyongyang, North Koreans wouldn't be feeling threatened. And if there is peace, firm peace in Korea, particularly between uh, South and North Koreans, there's simply no reasons for North Korean uh, for North Koreans to have any weapons of mass destruction, would it be uh, nuclear or chemical or bacteriological weapons? So I think it's a very comprehensive deal. Offering security to the regime, which is very stable, and uh, Daniel just said it may uh, continue for another 70 years. So it's much better to have a trustworthy um, uh, sort of uh, regime which is in control of its um, um, defense systems rather than have a chaos, uh, nuclear uh, or conventional, whether to have rather to uh, rather than having a, uh, some sort of nuclear uh, Armageddon, I think uh, to have better to have a peace uh, regime in Korea where 75 million of people live separated uh, for the last 70 years. So let's uh, um, let's not treasure the uh, some ephemeral uh, alliances uh, between Washington, which is really trying to sell protection to the countries in, you know, uh, warmongering and scaremongering people with the Cold War uh, stories. Uh, let's uh, live in the 21st century where globalization, uh, both uh, trade and, and political and uh, international relations um, sort of step okay. forward uh, away so from So deterrence in a way can work here. I mean, Danny, we'll wrap it up now and say that in one of his last articles, the distinguished Washington Post columnist Charles Krauthammer, he announced just recently he only has weeks to live, but he said the most likely ultimate outcome by far is acquiescence. And he said, after all, we did it when China went nuclear under Mao Zedong, whose regime promptly went insane under the Cultural Revolution. Question, why can't we just contain a nuclear North Korea? Danny. I don't think it's possible to contain a country like that. That's the challenge that we face. You know, the reality, Tom, is that Charles is right. That's what we've that's what we've done up to now is that we've we've done what another great American thinker, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, in another context called defining deviancy down. You know, each time we, we say we say that the 
we, we define down what we can tolerate so that we end up living with a nuclear weapons armed, weapons armed Iran. We end up living with a nuclear weapons armed Pakistan. We'll end up living with a nuclear weapons armed North Korea. They'll proliferate their weapons to, you know, all sorts of other rogue regimes. And then where will it end? It'll end inevitably where it always ends, in conflict. We just have to hope that it won't end with nuclear conflict. Danny, Leonard, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for being back on RN. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Take care, Tom. Daniel Pletka is from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington and Leonard Petrov from the Australian National University in Canberra. Trump, Brexit, Theresa May's decline, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand... Mahatia and Malaysia, that left-right populist government in Italy? (laughs) Are we about to witness another political shock around the world? Turkey's leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, he's been in power since 2003, first as Prime Minister, then, since 2014, as President. He's become increasingly authoritarian by most accounts, and he seemed unassailable a few months ago when he announced early elections for June 24. Yet such is the magic of politics, Erdogan and his party are facing serious obstacles to winning another term. The fractured opposition parties are ganging up in an anti-Erdogan alliance. And then there's the state of the Turkish economy. The Turkish currency has taken a plunge and lost more than 20% against the US dollar this year alone. To get to the bottom of all this before Turkey's elections, let's welcome to the show one of America's leading experts on Turkey. Henry Barkey is a Cohen Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. He's also a Senior Fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. Henry, welcome to Between the Lines. Thank you. Firstly, just remind us why Erdogan called these snap elections back in April. The elections were scheduled for 18 months from now, but all the expectations were that the economy would actually go into a severe crisis by then, and he did not want to take that chance. And so he moved the elections up thinking that it would be a cakewalk. And I think he's probably regretting that decision now. Yeah, because most of the time since he's been in power, my understanding is that the Turkish people, generally speaking, have seemed to just accept his authoritarian ways, cop the allegations of corruption, because uh, they've seen their uh, prosperity enhanced during his rule. There's something like, according to the World Bank statistics, nearly 70% boost in per capita income since 2003. That prosperity is now under threat, right? You mentioned the economy. Tell us more about the economy. The economy has been overheating for a while. But the president doesn't believe in raising interest rates to cool down the economy, to balance the Turkish lira against the dollar. So he has essentially forced the central bank to keep interest rates down, which essentially meant that the Turkish lira began to lose a great deal of value against international currencies. The Turkish central bank 
bucked the president's advice and raised interest rates significantly, and the Turkish lira rallied somewhat. But it is in, in the doldrums in terms of, of the currency. The other problem the Turks are facing now is an inflation rate. I mean, the reason they needed to increase interest rates is because inflationary pressures on the Turkish economy have increased substantially. So inflation is probably hovering around 13-14%, and people expect that number to go up. So there is a great deal of unease. I mean, it's true that the Turkish economy has done very well since 2003. I mean, some of the credit goes to Erdogan. Some of the credit goes to reforms that were introduced before he came to power. Yeah, well, when you mention the economy, I mean, it is heavily dependent on foreign investment. And my understanding is that Erdogan and indeed his AKP party, they've betrayed this currency slide as the result of a foreign conspiracy against Turkey. To what extent is that message resonating with the Turkish people? Well, it resonates with his base. In Turkey, you always blame foreign conspiracies for anything you don't like. And Erdogan, in fact, has been the master of that. Of course, it's not true, but some segment of the population does believe that. The other problem, of course, is that today the Turkish press is 90 to 95% controlled by Erdogan. So when you look at the newspapers every day, almost all of them have usually big pictures of Erdogan and what he said. They don't really quote the opposition that much or anybody else for that matter. And that conspiracy theories get amplified through the Turkish press. So you really don't have any ways of pushing back on, on that. That's a problem. What is really amazing at the moment is that despite this almost total control he has over the regular press, there is now for the first time a serious challenge against him. Mm. And this is happening despite his control of the, of the press, which tells you that people are slowly getting fed up of his style of governing, of his control, the economic situation. But I think it's mostly... People are saying enough is enough. He's been president and prime minister, as you said, since 2003. That's 15 years. And he and might be he there could... until the end of the 2020s, correct? Oh, absolutely. If he wins this election, he gets five years, then he has another term for another five years. That's 10 years. And then it's possible that he can finagle another five years. So do you think years. this election will go to a second round, or is it conceivable that Erdogan has enough support to win more than 50% of the vote and claim victory in the first round? If you had asked me the same question a month ago, I would have said uh, the chances of it going to a second round is significant, but not very significant. I am now convinced that it is going to go to a second round, provided there's no cheating. And the big unknown at the moment is how much cheating will there be in this election? Now, Turkish elections, historically, have always been very clean. If there was one thing you could trust in Turkey, no matter which government was in power, were election results. But for the first time, with the referendum over the constitution in 2017, we had questions of, of cheating come up. Because at the last minute, a huge number of unstamped ballots were admitted, and the there are a number of studies that show that, in fact, the president and his party lost the referendum and they cheated their way out of it. 
So if this does go to a second round, the presidential candidate most likely to face Erdogan in a runoff is Muharrem Inje, right? Yes. Now, there is, I think, Mr. Inje, who has turned out to be an extraordinary candidate because Turkish opposition candidates, especially those from his party, the Republican People's Party, have been always very lackluster, unimaginative, and unenergetic. For the first time in recent memory that we see a very, very dynamic candidate coming up from those ranks. I still think that it's an uphill battle for him to win because so much of the state mechanism is in the control of the ruling party and Mr. Erdogan that they will figure out every which way they can to win these elections. I am not confident that Mr. Inje, as good as he has proven to be, will be able to pull off a big surprise. Okay, I'm so Erdogan here remains the favourite. That's understandable. But how do you account for that, given his increasing authoritarianism, which has led to a crackdown on civil liberties, and of course he's targeted particular professions and sections of society? Erdogan is the most powerful Turkish leader since Ataturk, modern Turkey's founder, yet he's probably the least like Ataturk since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Remember what I said earlier, which is that so much of the press is controlled by Erdogan. So if you are the average Joe in Turkey, all you get is Erdogan propaganda on television and in the written press. So for a lot of people, that's the only truth that exists out there. Now, you're right. There is a great deal of unrest. There is a lot, great deal of unhappiness. And that's why Mr. Inje is going to do very, very well in the second round. And I think it will be relatively close, you know, maybe five, seven points. But I find that it's a very, very big hurdle for him to defeat Erdogan because the monopoly of power that Erdogan enjoys is extraordinary. Okay, but you seem pretty uh-huh. confident that uh, Erdogan will win this election, but surely there's a, this is an age of political volatility and unpredictability. Yes. Look what happened in Malaysia recently. No one predicted an upset win there. Fair enough. But remember also in Malaysia, it was a little bit unique in the sense that you had Mahathir who was running against his own disciples, so to say. So it was maybe going back to the factory settings. But I take your point. I mean, surprises are possible. I think the fact that this is a close race, the fact that it's going to go to a second round in of itself is already a huge deal for Turkey. Now, listen, finally, (laughs) provocative question. Turkey has distinguished itself from the Arab world by its viable, relatively liberal democracy for the past century. Is democracy still important to Turks or... Have other values become more important as the country has changed and particularly taken on more of a role on the international scene? I still think that democracy is important for Turks. If you ask the Turkish population, is democracy is important for you? They will say yes. But like a lot of Turks who don't necessarily see Erdogan as the dictator or, or the authoritarian type. So... It's a hard question to answer, but Turkey has become certainly very, very authoritarian. 
Look, Turkey always had a difficult democracy. Under Atatürk, it was not a democracy. You had a period of democracy starting in the 50s that was stopped by the military. The military intervened many times. So democracy always had a checkered past. At the beginning of Erdogan's rule, Turkey became very free. I mean, you could write anything you wanted, you could say anything you wanted, but since 2008-2011, he has essentially clamped down so much so that you go to jail now for just saying a wrong word. So it is no longer a democracy in the classical sense that we believe in democracy. It's, it is an electoral system where you have competing parties, but it is not, uh, it is not a democracy. Henri, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Henri Barki is Professor of International Relations at Lehigh University and Senior Fellow of Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Okay, well, that's all for Between the Lines this week. It's been great to have your company. Now, remember, if you missed anything, you can find all our interviews on the RN website. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week when I'll be chatting with Paul Dibb about his new book, Inside the Wilderness of Mirrors. He'll be giving us an insight into how Australia saw the threat from the Soviet Union during the Cold War and how we should be dealing with Putin in the post-Cold War era. Mm-hmm.